0: Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. You can have a seat this morning. We are not dismissing our kids. Once a month, we do what we call Family Sunday. Uh, we love for our elementary age kids to be full participants. But if you are like five-ish and younger, uh, there is programming still available in the back. Uh, there are clipboards. And kids, if, you are like, if you're under the age of 18, I want you this morning to, uh, to listen up as you hear uh, the text that we're going to be going through. And to ask your parents something that you didn't understand from it. So later on. Uh, after worship service, say, hey, I heard this. What does that mean? Mama, papa, or grandparent, or friend, whoever you came with this morning. Um, So that puts the spotlight on them, too. So if you're under age 18, write down a question you have and grill whoever you came with later and ask them for the answer to that, okay? All right. Uh, This morning, um, a couple things I'm thinking of. One is we have a uh, a special couple in our church who are celebrating 40 years of marriage today, Chuck and Sheila line Gang, They're sitting here in the front. Yeah, beautiful, a beautiful picture of faithfulness. Um, not to make you feel old, but I was two years old when you got married. So, <laughs> uh, also, Aaron Zavala, our uh, associate pastor, just celebrated a birthday a couple days ago. So, happy birthday, Aaron. Uh, So, yes, uh, this is the family, right? There's all sorts of things that go on on a weekly basis, things we celebrate together, things we lament together and walk through together as well. Um, So I I don't know if you've ever done this before, but you have have met somebody, maybe you met them at a party or at a workplace or a school, and you, you judge them immediately. You say, oh, this person is that kind of person. Uh, When I was younger, one of the kids this morning said, are your ears pierced? And I said, they were pierced. Uh, I used to have pierced ears. I used to wear uh, silver hoops in my ears. And uh, there were people, uh, I won't name who, but maybe in my wife's family, uh, when they first met me, they were like, you're dating a dude with earrings? Right? They got to know me. They realized I wasn't so bad uh, after all. Uh, So we do this, right? We we judge people uh, from a distance. And then oftentimes when we get to know people, we, we admit to ourselves, sometimes we maybe even admit to them, man, I was wrong about you. I was wrong about you. And that's a type of apology, maybe. But really what that's a, a type of, it's a type of repentance, When you've heard the word repentance, maybe from the the angry street preacher or from the guy in the pulpit or whatever, oftentimes it's in judgment and condemnation. You need to repent, which you do. Okay? We all do. But the picture of repentance is of a change of mind. That we saw something, namely we saw Jesus, wrongly, and now we see him rightly. And so we repent. We have a change of mind about who he is. And so, as we look at our text this morning, what we're gonna see is how repentance works in the believer's life to enact change. They they see the world differently, they interact with people differently, and that's our story. We're all in this process of repentance. And so the the street preacher has it right, the, the Bible thumping pastor has it right. Repentance is the first step in our relationship with Jesus, but it is not the only step. We live a life of repentance, a life of a change of mind. Um, One of the things I'm not a big fan of is I'm not a big fan of hypothetical questions. Uh, Does anybody ever come to you and say, uh, like maybe your kid, uh, Dad, hypothetically, if one of your kids was to throw a rock through your car windshield, how would you respond, right? Like, usually hypothetical questions are, your wife comes to you and says, hypothetically, if if we uh, overspent our our bank account by $300, you know, how would you respond? Like, usually when somebody comes with a hypothetical question, uh, it's not good. So I'm not a fan of of hypothetical questions. But when we think about our faith, um, we have to be prepared for the reality of repentance making us a little bit uncomfortable. So I might ask this question to you. What if following Jesus wasn't comfortable for you? What if your Christian faith didn't fit neatly with your chosen political party? What if the American image of success that you have been sold your entire life, those of you growing up in America, is not in line with the ways of God? Those are actually not hypothetical questions, (laughs) okay? Those are true statements, our Christian faith is going to make us uncomfortable at times and in certain situations. Our Christian faith does not will, and never will it be that it enters fully or is fully compatible with any political party. And the American image of success that you have been sold does not fit with the ways of God. I'm not saying in, in all, every aspect it doesn't, but I'm saying fully, it, there's, there's something, it's not ever gonna f- quite fit like that puzzle piece does. And I say these things because as we examine God's word, what we are trying to do is walk repentance, walk a change of mind, and as we do that, there are going to be things in our lives, individually, in our world, corporately, that don't fit with the ways of God. The reality is, is faith in Jesus changes things in us. Last week, we looked at this story from Mark's gospel, and we saw uh, what happens in the tension of doubt and of faith, and how important prayer is. And prayer is important because it realigns us with the heart of God. So faith in Jesus changes things. It changes things in our lives and in our relationships. First, it changes things in how we view God. The Bible says, apart from Jesus, we were enemies of God. We were strangers from the household of God. But when we place our faith in Jesus, we become friends of God. We become brothers and sisters in Christ. So faith in Jesus changes our relationship with God. And faith in Jesus also changes our relationship with others. But this change doesn't happen overnight, does it? Like any new relationship, we bring baggage in from our old relationships. Our wounds, our, our, our addictions, uh, all of the things that we've experienced in the past, we bring that into our relationship with God. So as change happens in us, as we follow Jesus, it's not easy. It's almost always a bit painful, and it certainly requires humility and what we'll see in our passage this morning is that for the first disciples of Jesus, just like us, they were in process. So if you have your Bibles this morning, open up to Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 41. Mark 9, 30 through 41. And keep in mind, these uh, these followers of Jesus, just like us, they were in process. They were trying to discern what was the ways of God and what was the influence of their culture. And they were, just like us, they were blind to a lot of the differences. So Mark chapter 9, verse 30, starting in verse 30. They, the disciples, left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, "'The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. "'They will kill him, and after three days he will rise.'" But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, and this is key, (laughs) they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So Jesus has been ministering for some time. If you've been with us as we've journeyed through the Gospel of Mark, crowds and crowds of people show up every time he ministers. He's, he's trying to get the message across, but he's also displaying his power and his authority, and so that is attracting a lot of people. So this particular story, scene, I should say, of Jesus' life starts out with Jesus uh, trying to get away from the crowd so that he can just focus on teaching his disciples. <laughs> and they're arguing about who's the greatest. So this is the scene. And this, there's this contrast here of of Jesus' words displaying this radical humility and of the disciples' argument. You know, recently as our kids have become more engaged with the the online world, texting and uh, emailing and all sorts of things, one of the things that we had to teach our kids is that what they write digitally, we want them to think in their minds that those things are going to be there forever. Forever. That someday, because we've seen this in our current culture, 20 years from now, somebody might pull up what they said at the age of 15 or 14. So we want them to be very aware of what they say, and what they write, how they interact with people. We've learned this, right, in our culture. Uh, it's been amazing. We see like professional athletes or movie stars that, t- that p- posted something on their social media account when they were 14. That was terrible. We can admit that. But now at the age of 34, they're getting raked over the coals in front of the whole world for what they said. It's funny, I can imagine as the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest, that they probably weren't anticipating that 2,000 years later we'd be talking about it in church, right? (laughs) Uh, Pretty humbling. (laughs) You know, like like Peter, James, and John, they, they just saw Jesus in his glory in the transfiguration on the mount. And, and I can imagine as they came down to the other nine disciples, they're saying, hey, in this argument about who's the greatest, clearly it's one of us three for what we just saw Jesus do. Uh, Peter, uh, John probably calls out to Peter and goes, but Peter, it's definitely not you. Do you remember when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan? He was talking to you. He wasn't talking to me. Right? So they're having this argument. Uh, and then they're, they're probably all talking to each other like, hey, remember remember, uh, just a couple days ago when we were trying to cast the demon out of that one kid? You couldn't do it. So it's clearly not you, right? So this is the argument that they're having. We don't know the details of it, but this is what I can imagine they're doing. It, they sound honestly like like my family, right? They sound, they sound like the, the kids of my family where they're trying to, to, to put each other in their place so that they can feel better about themselves. So this is what happens. This is what Jesus uh, Gets, uh, gets out of them that they're arguing about. And so Jesus, he hears this and he, he, he calls a family meeting. And he says, listen, the kingdom of God works a lot differently than what you think. You're, you're jockeying for position. You're trying to make yourself great and make others below you. That's not how the kingdom of God works. And what does Jesus say? He says, anyone who wants to be first... Must be the very last and the servant of all. Now, immediately, the, their cultural training kicks in. They go, I don't get this. This is not how the world works. We don't see this type of greatness displayed in our culture, in our country. Now, take note Jesus didn't correct them for wanting to be great. But he corrected them for the way that they thought they were to get to greatness. And this connects with other things that Jesus has said previously. He says, anyone who wants to save their life will what? Lose it for my sake. If you want to follow me, you have to take your what? Your cross. Like already Jesus has made it clear that following his ways is far different than anything they've ever experienced or seen before. So Jesus uses the illustration, right? He says check out this child. Now, in the Jewish culture, there was a very definitive hierarchy in the family unit, a very patriarchal culture. So as the household went, as the, as the male of the household went, so did the whole house. So men were the most important in that society, then women, then children. And so Jesus, in taking a, a child and and using him as an illustration was very counterculture to the disciples of that day. Basically, when you think about it, if you're to serve, you're to love somebody like a child, what quick benefits do you get? What immediate payoff do you get from welcoming, serving, being hospitable to a child? Now, there again, there's a cultural difference that it would resonate a little differently as the disciples heard this. But, but then and still today... Children have no power, no status, and very few rights. Young children are dependent; they're vulnerable, and they're entirely subject to the authority of their parents. So get this. We, we, you don't want to miss this. Jesus chooses a child to represent those who are needy and humble. And in doing so, he is making it very clear that if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you should direct your attention To those who are regarded as insignificant. Just as Jesus himself has done with his disciples. When Jesus collected his disciples, who did he collect? Well, he got a tax collector who was certainly on the outskirts of of culture. He got some fishermen who were just the blue collar workers of the day. He got a religious zealot who was kind of weird. Like, he collected these different types of men. To be in his inner circle. He didn't say, okay, who's the most powerful leader in my town? I'm going to call him. I'm going to go after the king. No, Jesus demonstrated this same attitude in his very own disciples that he called. So Jesus requires his great disciples to show humble service for those who don't have much to offer in return. And here's what he wants his followers to know. That true greatness comes when we have a right understanding of God and of others. So who is God? God is the creator of the universe. He, he thought of you and me, and that's why we're here today. He breathed life into everything that has life. He sustains, the, the Bible says he sustains the, word, the world by the power of his spirit. God is great. And who are we? Well, the Bible says that we are image bearers of that same God. No matter your age, your stage, your skin color, what country you were born in, all of us are image bearers of God. And so Jesus is reorienting his disciples off of themselves and to others, to others. Essentially what he says is, welcome a child, it's like you're welcoming me, image of God, image bearer. Welcome me, you are welcoming God. So there's a direct connection. In life and in in relationships, the world trains us to look for immediate payoffs. But the ways of Jesus mean we are willing to sacrifice the quick benefit for the long-lasting, the eternal reward. Those of you who have parents, you know that the days are long, but the years are short. The, the, the way that you invest in your children now, in the moment, it seems like it's not producing anything. But years from now, as your children grow, and as they mature, you see the investment that you've made. Some of you, some, some in our church are foster parents, even more so with foster parents. You receive a child into your home. You love them like you're their own, but they may be gone tomorrow. And so this... Illustration that Jesus uses is still so relevant today. And so, to be great, it's our obedience in the ways of Jesus that leads us into the presence of God. That's where greatness is found. It's our obedience to the ways of Jesus that leads us to the presence of God. So, our challenge today in our culture is to not be enticed by the quick payoffs. Right to to live your life for to be popular in your school or in your workplace. I remember uh, the day I graduated high school. All of the cliques that I had worked so hard to, to be a part of, they were gone. As soon as we graduate high school, what? Four years to to be the cool kid, and now now I have to start over. Don't sacrifice. Don't be enticed by those. Yeah, who who was that? That was good. <laughs> Azalea and I planned that some. Don't be enticed by the quick payoffs. Popularity, financial security, political organizational or power. So as the disciples are processing all of this, John, who is often the spokesperson for the whole group, he changes the subject because it's a little humiliating to admit. They were arguing about who is the greatest. So he changes the subject. If you have your Bibles, turn to thir- Verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Now, we often think of the disciples in the Bible as being this elite group of 12 people. But there were a lot more disciples of Jesus than just the 12. Remember, thousands of people were hearing Jesus talk on the regular. And the the 12 were certainly uh, picked by Jesus for a special mission. And so when Jesus left the earth, they would carry out that mission. But anybody who places their faith in Jesus and anybody who lives out that faith is considered a disciple. And I hope that goes for most of you in this room. And it was true then as well. So after arguing about which one is the, the greatest in the kingdom, we see how this exclusive attitude that they're trying to do as an individual, like I'm better than you all 12, well, is also a group issue. These 12, they think that nobody else should be able to do what they had been doing by the authority of Jesus. And in doing that, they had forgot whose authority that they had been given in the first place. They would forgotten the big picture of what this was about. This was not some kind of exclusive religious club. Jesus wanted everybody to know him and to walk in his ways. So they see this guy doing what they were doing. They go, wait a second, time out. He's not, he's not part of this group. Now, it's interesting to think how this person, outside their group, was doing just what they were doing. But this shouldn't be a surprise. Because that's what followers of Jesus do. This person had seen and heard Jesus. And then he thought, I'm just going to go do what he did. When I was in high school, we had there's this popular kind of Christian marketing craze. WWJD. What would Jesus do? So all of a sudden, like, half my school is wearing these WWJD bracelets. And I'm like, I don't think y'all are Christian, but that's cool. (laughs) Sports stars are wearing them and all these things. And it was a good thought, right? Like, it was a reminder, like, in every moment we're in, what would Jesus do? But I'm thinking, like, I don't know that Jesus... Played on the tennis team in high school. Like, what? How am I? What am I supposed to do with that? Right? Like, I don't. I I don't know that Jesus had the internet. Like, so there would be these moments where we'd be like, Yeah, in theory, this is good, but what would Jesus do? I have no idea. I think even better for us, the, a better starting point would be what did Jesus do? What did Jesus? That's not subjective, right? We just go, Okay, this is what he said. This is what he did. I'm going to let that then soak into me a little bit. And I'm going to let that change how I think and view people and the world that I live in. And then out of that, we trust that the Holy Spirit would show us what to do in those moments. When we skip to the what would Jesus do, it becomes so subjective. So again, back to the text. Here's the the human issue. The human issue is that we have been taught to believe that greatness comes by gathering a crowd, by gaining followers or exerting power. But Jesus says it comes by serving. We are taught that significance comes in uh, by belonging to an exclusive group. But Jesus says all who trust him are welcome. There's no insiders or outsiders. And so as the disciples were were. We're telling this guy to stop. They were essentially creating the first denomination, weren't they? <laughs> and what was one of the, the very key things that Jesus prayed for his followers? Was that they may be one as you and I are one. This is what the beautiful community of, of believers is supposed to be about. Not, not drawing lines and keeping things separate, but by coming together in their diversity. So while John has tried to change the subject here, (laughs) hey, Jesus, we we stopped that guy from doing that thing. Whoops, I guess we shouldn't have. Uh, Jesus definitely connects the conversation back to what it means to display love and humble service. Again, he says, truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. This is not a statement that it is your works or your charity that saves you it is also not a statement of universalism that anybody that does good things is going to be good with God. Because he's talking about what? Those who belong to him. Those who belong to the Messiah. What he is saying is if you want greatness, if you want to be rewarded, put others first. Instead of fighting for position and arguing about who is the greatest in the family of God, serve each other. C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Now, thankfully, I can say I've never heard anyone arguing about who is the greatest Christian in our church, at least not yet. But you know what makes this type of humble lifestyle that Jesus is encouraging his disciples to walk in difficult? What makes this so difficult for us is that the messaging of our culture is screaming at us to focus on ourselves. I mean, absolutely saying, it is about you. Look at yourself. You need this. You need that. It's all about you. Let's compare for a moment the message of American culture to the message of God's kingdom. Right now, if you were to, to To jump on social media or on on YouTube, you would see all sorts of advertising directed to make you feel a little uncomfortable about who you are because they have an offer that will make you look better. I mean, the amount of time, uh, the amount of videos that are targeted towards young girls having to do with makeup is obscene on YouTube. And what is the messaging there? The messaging is who you are right now is not enough. You are not beautiful enough. If you just do this, just do this, then people will accept you for who you are. I mean, the the very reason we have filters on Instagram is so that we can look a little bit better than we think we look now. So the message of our culture is screaming, especially at young people, that you are not beautiful enough. But here's the truth of God. God says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully and wonderfully. You are beautiful, not just because of your outward appearance, but because of the image of God that is within you. That doesn't sell products. That doesn't motivate you to to do a thing or to spend more time watching YouTube videos, does it? But that's not what God's truth is designed to do. It's designed to speak life into you. You are beautiful just how you are. So that's one message in our culture. Another message, again, as I mentioned, is this hyper-focus, hyper-focus on your identity. Now, the Bible makes it really clear that he has made all of us beautiful and diverse in our cultures, in our languages, in our different different shades of skin tone. Like, this is a beautiful picture of God's creation. But there is a hyper-focus on identity to the point that it creates divisions, And so we have a month for everything, a day for everything. And and cultures and and diversity is to be celebrated, but not at the expense of drawing lines, of making people feel othered or outside. And so the ways of Jesus, uh, they focus the believer on unity in the midst of diversity. Not unanimity, that we all look the same, dress the same, act the same. That's not what God wants. But that in our diversity, we are one. Again, Jesus in John chapter 17 says, Father, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but you make them one as you and I are one. So that's another messaging of our culture. Another messaging of our culture goes back to the theme in this message is greatness. How do we achieve greatness? Why is greatness important? What type of greatness do we want? And what will we do to get that greatness? We literally have a class of politicians now called MAGA. With one of the core values of this being me first. Me first. We need to be careful. We need to be aware what we are buying and what we are being sold. Jesus makes it clear that it is His way first, not my way first. And what does his way look like? We just read it. His way is others. It's others, folks. The reason Jesus came was for you and me. To make us renewed in our lives and our minds. To bring us back into relationship with him. So when Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to reject both the personal and the corporate exclusive mentality of our culture and to display instead the powerful force of loving humility. It's counterculture. It's radical. And it is not the messaging of our culture, just like it wasn't in the disciples' day. So while the world says you may not thrive or even survive if you don't take control, if you don't make yourself and your country great, Jesus displays a radically different way. And I'll end with this. Philippians chapter 2 says, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Are you willing to follow this Jesus, this humble servant, this God who limited himself to humanity? The God of the universe took the path of humility, and here's what we need to remember. He won. (laughs) He won. Where the world says, no, 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 that's not how you do things. Jesus proved him wrong. He defeated death, and he secured a way for you and I to join him in his greatness. And this is why Scripture uses the identity statements For Jesus followers like sons and daughters, that's who we are. Friend of Jesus, co-heir with Jesus, chosen, beloved, and so many more beautiful labels for us that have followed Jesus. And this is good news. Our acceptance of Jesus as our Lord and Savior is in itself a humble act. It's you and me saying, I don't have the power to save myself. I can't live by the the rules of the culture to make myself great, to pull myself up my... I need the power of God in my life. And so we are saying, when we say yes to Jesus, we're acknowledging that. It is a humble statement. And we're then choosing to, to follow the path of greatness that leads through Jesus. Jesus secured it for us. He did all the hard work. All we have to do is say yes to him. Isn't that much better news? Isn't that much better news? That you are not enough. That's what the world says. That you need the right person in power to feel secure. That's what the world, like none of that is possible. And Jesus says, I have secured your greatness. I have secured your peace. I have secured your righteousness. Here you go. Why wouldn't you say yes to that? I can only speak for myself, but I need to hear this message every day because every other message is opposed to this message. Every other message is. And so as we, as we contemplate the truth of God today as a church family, let me encourage you to make this message central to your Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Don't wait till next Sunday to hear this again. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you for the truth of your gospel. It is good news. May we receive it as such. It's humbling to say this morning, I need you. But we do, Father. And we know it. We feel it in our heart. And if if that's you this morning, if you go, wait a second. I hear this. I see this. I'm seeing Jesus differently. Then today is your day of repentance, the first step. To receive Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, as the one who has secured your greatness. And so I would say to you, may this be the day that you say yes to him. May this be the marker in your journey, whether you're online or whether you're here with us in person. And if you are ready to make that step, to walk with a bunch of other people that have made the same decision, then we want to pray with you this morning. We're going to walk with you. And for all of us, Father, we ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Your gospel is offensive to the culture. And Lord, where we might be offended even personally, by would we, 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 we pay attention to that? Would we be humble servants just as you were? Loving you and loving others. So God, we thank you. Thank you, thank you for your good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.